Um, there are certain things that are just sacred rights. One's a sacred obligation that we're never going to renege on a debt. We're the only nation in the world. <laughs> we have never, ever reneged on a single debt. But when it comes to voting rights... Voting rights you... is equally as consequential. When it comes to voting rights, just so I'm clear, though, you would entertain the notion of doing away with the filibuster on that one issue? Is that correct? And maybe more. Well, welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, October 22nd. I'm Andrew Walworth. That was President Biden on Thursday night at a CNN town hall in Baltimore, making news as he discussed the future of the Senate filibuster and the fate of his Build Back Better economic initiative. Biden has been forced to shed some progressive items in the bill in an effort to win the support of key moderates in the Senate, while at the same time trying to keep progressives on board. We'll take a look at how that difficult task is going. A key provision he has had to jettison is the long-promised tax hikes on corporations and wealthy individuals, which were supposed to pay for all the social spending in the bill. One person blocking that is Senator Kristen Sinema from Arizona, who has emerged as a key player in these negotiations. We'll talk about her, and we'll look at the governor's race in Virginia. The polls show the race getting tighter, with education emerging as a key issue. Democratic candidate Terry McAuliffe continues to lead the Real Clear average, and he has a sizable spending advantage. But newcomer Glenn Youngkin is surprising a lot of people, and some think he may be showing a way forward for the GOP in a post-Trump-centric universe. Joining me to talk about all this are Real Clear Politics president and co-founder Tom Bevan, Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon, and Real Clear associate editor and columnist A.B. Stoddard. A.B., I want to start with you. Uh, what is the state of play for President Biden's economic agenda at this point? And will he be able to get something over the goal line anytime soon? Well, the latest uh, developments um, uh, show that the White House is making a huge push to end this fight by October 31. That's a Sunday. That's Halloween. Um, a week, a little more than a week from now, but this obviously means probably by next Saturday, probably the 30th or Friday, that is when some surface transportation funding extensions will expire. They had to be reauthorized, extended, excuse me, at the end of September when this last deadline was not met by the Democrats. And they have come to the conclusion in the White House um, and obviously among other Democratic leaders that for two reasons, this needs to end. The fighting um, between the different factions of the party is not helping the process. Um, and Biden's polling uh, bears that out. He looks weak. He can't bring the party together. He can't get this over the line. And the second reason is he's demanded a deal before he goes to a climate summit in Glasgow, Scotland, a week and a half from now. I believe, on November 1. And so we cannot today discuss rationally what's going to be in the final package. That horse trading is going to be painful and is going to go down to the wire. And obviously, as we've discussed for months and months and months and months, will largely be determined by the limits placed by the two moderate senators, uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. But I think all the factions now seem to be on board that it really does have to end next week. Uh, and now they're under uh, serious pressure from the White House to do so. Tom, we know what's out at this point. Two years of community college is out. This is all according to the president from just last night. Twelve weeks of paid family medical leave have been reduced to four weeks. Uh, the climate agenda looks largely uh, curtailed. 
and no hike in corporate taxes or higher taxes on wealthy Americans. So the top line number looks like it's going to be $1.9 trillion. You think progressives will stay on board for this? <laughs> well, that's that's always been the question. Where can the compromise occur? And you know, I think we're seeing now that the moderates have the upper hand and they are just, you know, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema in the Senate, they are driving the process. And you've seen, even though the progressives are sort of kicking and screaming, you know, Bernie Sanders was on TV last week saying, look, I, you know, 3.5 trillion was my was my floor, not my ceiling, but we're not going to get that. Um, so there's been acknowledgement, I think, even among the progressives that it's going to be less than. And, and they're not happy about it, obviously. What the administration is concerned about is, is losing support from that group moving forward in the midterms. They need progressives to be happy with the administration and energized by what they're doing. And if they if progressives see, and by the way, not just next, <laughs> not just next November, but in a couple of weeks, and we're going to talk about the Virginia race. Um, but if progressives are like, you know, we were promised the moon and all we got was this crappy T-shirt, they're not going to be excited to go turn out for folks like Terry McAuliffe and others. So I think it is a it is a legitimate concern. But I think we'll, now as it's getting down to crunch time, um, I think we are seeing that the that the moderates are, are have the have the stronger hand. I've always thought they had the stronger hand. Now they're starting to play their cards. So Carl, president last night, he said, look in the United States Senate, when you have 50 Democrats, everyone is the president. I, I want to talk about the filibuster for a second, though, because he did say that he would consider ending the filibuster, it sounded like, for a host of reasons, not just voting rights and not just his economic plan, but he couldn't do it right now because he's got to get this bill across the goal line. Well, there were two things about it that struck me, Andy. The first was, um, is when you, you said... And, and he said, the fil- get rid of the filibuster and maybe more. And I mm-hmm. thought, well, was he talking about having the FBI arrest Senator Cinnamon and Manchin and charge him with domestic terrorism? That's what they do to parents in Loudoun County nowadays. <laughs> I, I thought, <laughs> what, what does that even mean? Um, but, but, but his point about when you have 50 Democrats, they're all president. He's trying to remind his own party of this very tenuous majority they have. They, have, they don't have a majority in the Senate. They have half the seats. Any tie-breaking vote would be cast by Kamala Harris, the vice president, former senator. Um, if if they push him too hard and he pushes them too hard, there's no reason Joe Manchin has to caucus with the with the Democrats. He could, and he doesn't need to join the Republican Party. He's not really a Republican. He could be what he is, which is an independent. And he could, and he could, and he and Senator could say, "We'll caucus with whatever party's making sense." And then they have you know 48 senators. So Biden is trying to remind his the people on his left who are pushing him, um, just how tenuous their majority is, while at the same time sounding like he's in charge, like a leader. So I I didn't, that performance at the town hall, I, I know this, some commentators panned it, but I thought he was, you know, he's doing the best he can with with a with a weak hand. You know, I would argue that Sanders, Sanders said that was his floor, 3.5. Sanders already won this argument. The progressives already run this argument. And, and, for, and I can prove that because I have a, a non-progressive commentator on this very program, Tom Bevan, who thinks that $1.9 trillion in taxpayers' money is now the equivalent of a T-shirt. So I suggest <laughs> that that the parameters of the have already been moved by the progressives and, and whatever they get is going to be more than they would have gotten had they not spoken out. T-shirt Tom Bevan. I like that. <laughs> what do you think, Tom? Well, 
I don't think that I was characterizing the views of progressives who, who will be disappointed with 1.9 trillion. And they will. I mean, in particular, the climate piece of it, I think, is upsetting uh, folks because that was that was part of the big promise as well. They're going to get, you know, some paid leave, but not as much as they wanted, you know. But Tom, these are not really infrastructure projects. If you think about the the coal stuff, it's a, it's a reorientation. But putting people out of work and closing coal mines has never been a traditional understanding of of infrastructure. And paid leave, uh, the government paying for two years of community college, you know, where they talk about human infrastructure investments, that's not infrastructure. You have banned the term human infrastructure on this podcast. <laughs> well, I banned, the, he's a I, purist. I banned the term tax hikes a year ago. I noticed that. <laughs> crept back in, Andy. I take well, that I out of the be, copy of our reporters, but I can't take it out of your copy. I will be interested to see if the administration, <laughs> which has been promoting this fiction that right their plan costs zero, right? It's cost zero, add zero to the deficit. If now that they won't be able to do some of the tax hikes that they wanted on corporations and individuals, whether they will still say that the plan costs zero or <laughs> how, how they're going to run the numbers on that. So, A.B., let's talk about Kirsten Cinema for a minute. She's pretty uh, central to this. And as Tom said, she's the one fighting these tax hikes and seems like single-handedly she got that all out of the bill. Um, who is Kirsten Cinema, and why is she at the center of all this? Well, um, she, you know, she and Manchin have been sort of the holdout senators from the beginning. They made it clear when they voted on the procedural vote months ago to allow this reconciliation process to go, uh, to come into play and, and go through the pipeline. They approved, they voted with a $3.5 trillion price tag saying ultimately they wanted the process to begin, but they would never approve of that number. And so they've been pretty frank all along. Joe Manchin speaks to reporters almost every day and is very open about what he wants. Cinema never speaks to reporters. And if she does, she says, I'm talking only to the White House, or I can't answer that question. She remains sort of enigmatic because she doesn't like to give interviews and she's not visible in this process, but she's in, intimately involved, constantly speaking with Biden uh, and his chief and, and the people that are negotiating this. And Biden was very diplomatic about her at his town hall um, because he knows how to do this. He said, as Carl noted, to try to show his left, every pres- every senator is ultimately a president. We have to deal with them individually. They all have broad power over the process. He said that she was smart as the devil, you know, flattering her. I've known of her reputation uh, since she was a House member. She is very smart and she is very thoughtful um, in policy negotiations. She uh, had a, ran a good race against a Republican Uh, won it very narrowly in 2018, Um, has since, everyone likes to talk about how she began her career uh, in the state legislature as a Green Party member. She's a former social worker. She's, you know, really thought of, if you look at the beginning of her career as sort of the ultimate, like, screaming, progressive, bleeding heart, liberal, whatever you want to call. Um, She's now really come to the middle, getting a lot of pharma donations, corporate donations, weighing in on their behalf uh, over corporate tax increases and over the negotiation of drugs under Medicare. That has really frustrated the left. They're very angry with her. They've, they're, they're, you know, they're training all their ire on her more, I think, than Joe Manchin, because Joe Manchin at least has been very open about these discussions 
um, that he's having. Joe Manchin's also at the leadership table. So he meets with Schumer every single week with Senator Warner, Senator Warren, and Senator Sanders. So there is sort of this progressive cons- or progressive moderate meeting of the minds on a regular basis that she's not a part of, right? So, so I think it, 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 for activists, it's easier for them to make her the punching bag than Manchin, who's also a committee chairman. Um, but I and think also that, because uh, AB also because you know she's she's more vulnerable in her state than he is in his yes, in terms of yes, left wing pressure. Yes, very good point. Uh, and I think that, frankly, she doesn't care. She's carved out a really good coalition of support of Republicans, independents and Democrats. She won with the help of anti-Trump Republicans in in um, Arizona, uh, largely in Maricopa in 2018. And she's she's figured out how to win in Arizona. I don't think you know I, they're going to try to primary her, but that's three years away. So for now, she remains a huge force in these negotiations uh, but one that uh, is a bit mysterious uh, because she's not talking. Uh, I think that the president, as you see, saw last night, is is just very aware of how to handle her, how to keep their discussions private, um, and how to not provoke her. Carl? Well, I agree with everything A.B. said. I, I, I want to stress one thing A.B. mentioned. Sinem is on the left on climate change. Those coal plants are in West Virginia. They're not in Arizona. And she would she would follow the party on that. And that just shows you just how tenuous. You're talking about one vote here or there, right? One vote on this, one vote on that. And she and Manchin, what they have in common is that they're willing to stand up for leadership. And they're pretty fearless. And you know, in a sense, they're to be admired. I mean, Arizona has a history of having maverick senators, and she fits right in. And her constituents like that. Manchin could run in West Virginia from any party. He could run as a Republican. He's won as a Democrat. He could he could run as an independent. So there's limited leverage they have. They have to talk to these people. They have to negotiate with them. But Manchin and Cinema on this one issue, climate change, are very different. So Tom, I, I'm, but I'm just curious. It seems to me like the ire against Christian Cinema is a little over the top. I mean, you know, <laughs> think. Yeah, well, well, you know, we had the incident with the protesters following her into the bathroom, which is a couple, you know, two weeks ago or whatever. And there was this sort of, what does she want? What do women want? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This underlying sort of sexist theme that runs through, it seems to me. What do you make of her? And, and, you know, we've said that she's not up until 2024. So it's hard to pressure her, isn't it? My reading of the coverage wasn't so much it was sexist, but I do find it to the point that Carl was making, you know, uh, back in the day when John McCain was the maverick, he was celebrated, right? He was idolized and lionized by the media at every single turn. Kirsten Cinema is not getting that same kind of coverage. She is not being seen. Uh, you know, you're more likely to see stories about how suddenly she's, you know, uh, in the pocket of, uh, there was just a story the other, like she's, she's, paying off all of her K street buddies because she's looking for a job after she gets out of office and wants to make money. And it's all about, you know, her trying to cozy up to big pharma and also, I mean, it's just, it's just craziness. Right. So um, I think that's why the coverage feels the way it is. I mean, obviously she's getting the attacks from, from progressives, but just sort of the mainstream media coverage is much less favorable to her than it was for John McCain in that exact same position, just a, you know, a, few years ago. Well, A.B., I mean, you do see like mentions of her wardrobe and her hair color and chunky jewelry. I mean, uh, am I wrong? 
Please tell me I'm wrong. I just I, told you you were wrong, Andy. I know. I, know. <laughs> I was just I'm mansplaining to you how you're wrong about the sexist thing. <laughs> <laughs> Good one, Devin. <laughs> yeah, I, I just because I'm a woman doesn't mean that I can uh, diagnose misogyny and sexism um, in, in, in attacks in the political debate. Uh, I, I think that she gets a lot of attention paid on her wardrobe because she wears things to get attention. You know, you, you walking around in miniskirts and pink sneakers um, and fluffy shirts and, and everything else as a senator in 2021 is still going to get you attention. It, it remains out of the ordinary. But I think that if she spoke to reporters all the time, like Joe Manchin does, she might have an easier time. I think the media, I mean, we understand the activists on the left. We get that. They hate Joe Manchin too. I think the media, um, if she gave them more time, make it easier on her. Uh, and I do know that when you wear the, the things that she wears, you are looking for a response. Carl, what do you think? Well, our viewers can't see it, but AB is wearing a miniskirt and pink sneakers <laughs> right now. <laughs> <laughs> In the privacy of my own home, though, Carl. <laughs> that was that was a humorous aside for our literal-minded <laughs> listeners. Well, there's one other thing I'd add to it. Um, that I, I, I think Tom and Abe made the right points. But I, the one thing I'd add is, you know, McCain was a Republican, so when he veers from the orthodoxy, he's going sort of toward where the media is, where you know the, the mainstream press is. When she, when she, when a Democrat goes against the leadership of their own party, they're sort of leaning away from where most reporters are. So there's a, there's an ideological component to it as well. I think when it, and I'm talking about now comparing her to John McCain, not, not the coverage comparing her to Joe Manchin. I, I'll say, can I, if I could get one last word on this, I always find it interesting when the Democrats, and this fascinated me during the, the presidential primary, right? When Kamala Harris dropped out, she attributed it to sexism, right? The, that was part of the reason she couldn't break through, even though she had had a breakthrough moment at that first debate and she had taken the lead in the polls and then subsequently just sort of went down, down, down until she dropped out. When Pete Buttigieg dropped out, there was all this talk about, oh, well, it's, you know, homophobia. And, and, and we're talking about, again, Democratic primary voters, right? So the, the activists on, on the left and even some of the media were willing to sort of chuck Democratic primary voters under the bus. And there's, there's kind of a similar feel to this um when again you know kirsten cinema doesn't tow the party line and suddenly she's she's you know in the in the pocket of lobbyists you know um and she she has all these nefarious motives that are are you know she's she's playing this sort of corrupt game and i just i think that's it's 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 a reaction that we've seen repeatedly and i just don't a, I don't agree with it. And B, I just, I think it, it fuels this whole idea that to AB's point, like we're looking for things, you know, we're trying to attribute whatever to, to these motives, whether it's sexism or racism or homophobia or, you know, whatever. Well, let's turn to Virginia. So Tom, I tried my sexism card. I was outplayed three to one there. So <laughs> I guess there was no sexism in the democratic party today. That's great. Um <laughs> But let's talk about uh, Virginia, Tom. The polls. I, ab I abstained, Andy. It was two oh, to one okay. with one abstention. <laughs> well, uh, the polls tightened up in Virginia uh, considerably. Um, you know, I tried to send around articles to everyone who's going to be on the show. I could not find one article 
that really said, don't worry, Terry's going to pull this out. So what's going on? Uh, what does the Real Clear uh, polling average say? And what are the most recent polls say? So McAuliffe's leading by less than two percentage points in our average, which is five polls that were taken over the last basically two and a half weeks. The last two polls, which one of them was a Trafalgar group poll, which is a Republican pollster, um, but also uh, Monmouth, which just came out earlier this week, have the race tied, dead even. Uh, Monmouth's 46-46 and Trafalgar's 48-48. So a couple things. I mean, and and the reason you didn't find any articles is because because Democrats are really worried. I mean, they are petrified that Terry McAuliffe is in the process of losing this, that Youngkin has the momentum heading into Election Day. And and they've been trying to figure out ways. I mean, you just saw Terry McAuliffe come out with this ad uh, earlier this week where he addressed this thing that he said at the debate. He said Youngkin was taking his words out of context that he never said that he you know, thought parents shouldn't be involved with schools or whatever. And the Youngkin campaign turned around and produced an ad of him saying it like seven different times in all these different interviews where he was doubling down and tripling down and quadrupling down. So um, he's in trouble. I mean, I think I think this is going to be very, very close. Terry McCall's problem is one of the problems is that he's at 48.8% on our average and in the mom is at 46. And as Sean Trendy had said on this show a couple of weeks ago, I mean, he's sort of the de facto incumbent. He's a previous governor. He's of the same party as the current governor. And the fact he's not able to to get himself close to, to 50% is a real problem uh, for him. And so I think it's going to be very, very close. So close, in fact, that I think we're going to have very much a contested election. And whoever, I think it's going to be decided by a small enough margin that whoever loses is going to cry foul, um, particularly, I think, if McAuliffe loses because he's not expected to lose. And if he loses by 30,000 votes, he's going to say, well, you know, I mean, he just had Stacey Abrams campaigning for him the other day, and she still hasn't conceded the Georgia governor's race from three years ago. So, um, Tom, you know, in Virginia, you can't succeed yourself. So if if the governor loses, if if he loses and he contests as long as Stacey Abrams is complaining, Youngkin's term could be over and Terry would still say he won. It would be, it'd be rather confusing for the electorate. <laughs> it could be. But I, I do think it's, I think it's going to be really, really close. And I think Democrats are extraordinarily worried. I mean, this would be a terrible sign for them if he were to lose this race. Yeah, Tom's right. They're petrified. And um, McAuliffe is not a great candidate. He has stepped all over himself. I think his whole like energetic, happy guy routine, it, it was fresh the first time. But this time, as Tom says, he's the de facto incumbent um, trying to get an, another term for his party when Democrats are tired. Biden's polling is terrible. Um, there's tremendous apathy. Uh, among uh, partisan Democrats, there's a candidate on, uh, you know, on the right, on the, the Republican ticket who has, you know, sort of become Mitt Romney and gotten voters' minds off of Trump. He's there's Youngkin signs all over Northern Virginia, which is a terrible sign for McAuliffe. Um, he would have to defy historical trends. Um, look back to 17 when Ralph Northam beat Gillespie uh, because Trump had won the year before. Look back to 2009, Bob McDonald, the Republican, um, wins th- that seat because even though you know Obama had been elected the year before, so uh, the parties, the president's party is badly in Virginia. That one year out from winning, this is a bellwether that will tell us a lot about the midterms, and I, I think that you know. The only good news 
going for Terry McAuliffe is that Dave Wasserman, you know, his last comment on this that I know of was that he thinks he's going to pull it out. Every other indicator I look at is terrible news for Terry McAuliffe. And I think he's, um, I think he, I think it looks like he's going to lose. Just tell our viewers who Dave Wasserman is. Oh, I'm sorry. From Cook Political Report. He's, I mean, for many of us, you know, I mean, Sean Trendy aside, you know, with all um, respect to Sean, Dave tweets more. (laughs) And so on election nights, we all hang on his every tweet. And he's been um, right most of the time. Um, And uh, sorry about that. The other thing I wanted to add also is that there's a big push uh, from National Democrats with regard to this race to get both infrastructure bills passed next week so that he can talk about it for like the last three days of his campaign, thinking that that's going to help him because failure to get it over the line before Tuesday, November 1, just to them seems like a real kind of albatross for McAuliffe. So there's a lot of push about the Virginia's governor race in the conversation of of, um, pushing the agenda through the House and the Senate by the end of next weekend. Carl, Donald Trump is uh, sort of looming in the background of this whole thing, isn't he? Because there was this rally Wednesday with uh, Steve Bannon, organized by John Frederick, who's a talk show host down there and former um, campaign chairman. Uh, Youngkin didn't attend. He, uh, he's trying to do this sort of dance where he, he can't lose those Trump voters. But at the same time, Trump uh, lost by 10 points, I think, to, uh, to Biden. Can he do this? Can he pull off this sort of dance where he's, he's got to attract Trump voters, but he, he doesn't want to appear with Trump himself? Well, no one's managed to do it so far, but that's the riddle. And if he can thread that needle, um, <laughs> then he's going to then he's going to show the Republicans they have a way out of this devil's bargain that they that they find themselves in. Um, and you know, McAuliffe, if you look at his ads or him speak, he's running against the Yunkin Trump ticket, and and Yunkin has kept his distance from Trump. That that's kind of that's okay. That's not great politics. It's intellectually dishonest, but. But Terry McAuliffe's gone a lot further than that. I mean, he's, he's, you know, he ran, as AB pointed out, he ran an aspirational can- campaign eight years ago. He was the happy warrior. This time he's the nasty warrior. And he, he mostly, he just attacks Yunkin all day long. And most of the things he says are lies. He says that Yunkin has vowed to make abortion illegal in Virginia. He's never said anything of the kind. He said that um, criticizing, uh, uh, critical race theory, the excess of it is a racist dog whistle. He got onto that this week. He's repeated that phrase over and over again, racist dog whistle. He said that repeatedly called uh, Yunkin an anti-vaxxer, which is untrue. And it's just, it's really, in a way, I don't know, if these attacks stick, then we'll have more of the same. The, you know, the Republicans will think, well, we're stuck with Trump. And the Democrats think, oh, great, we're we get to run on Trump and it won't be good. So, you know, you kind of hope, well, I don't, you know, I don't root for any side in an election, but it would be a sour thing if that kind of campaigning was rewarded. Yeah, Tom. No, I, I was going to add to that. I mean, it is part of the problem is he's spending so much time attacking that he hasn't really put forth an agenda that anyone, everyone's like, why do you want to be governor again? You've already done this job. What are you going to do? And and so I don't think voters are clear on that. And I think the other issue is this education issue, which is, you know, exploding in Loudoun County, which is like the beating heart of the of the Democratic coalition. I mean, without the northern suburbs of Virginia, um, you know, they're going to lose this race. And so he's battling this this critical race theory and this case of the 
uh, parent whose daughter was assaulted by a transgender student in one of the schools. And then the administrator transferred that person to another school and they assaulted someone else. And when well, the administration lied about it and they lied about it, covered it up, emails have come out saying they knew about it way back when. So, I mean, this story does not seem to be ending. And McAuliffe, again, he releases out, he's trying to stop the bleeding and put an end to it, but it's, it's not happening. And, and without the suburbs, without a huge, you know, running up the, running up the score in the Northern suburbs, um, he is going to lose this race. A.B., what about the national uh, implications of this? I mean, let's just pause it for, for the sake of argument that Youngkin pulls this out. I mean, does this demonstrate that uh, to the Republican Party that they can go forward without Trump? Well, I think that the if he were to lose, the party will obviously take a deep dive into the data and see how many Trump voters, you know, turned out in the rural parts of the state versus former Republicans or independent Republican leaners in Northern Virginia, you know, et cetera, because there is a real question about how much Trump is uh, mobilizing or depressing. He, as we all know, said last week that the voters, unless his disproven, you know, fake election fraud is quote solved, um, voters are going to, he, he's, he wants voters to sit out 22 and 24 um, solved means what? He gets the presidency back? Uh, no, no one even knows what that means. So he comes out with these bonkers messages and gives like a de facto endorsement to Stacey Abrams over Brian Kemp in, in, a, in a matchup next year, should she run against the sitting governor in Georgia. And this is straight up voter suppression. I mean, he is literally suppressing votes for Republicans. So we're, we're going to have to look if Youngkin loses at the Trump liability, right? And where, where were the numbers of voters, what kinds of voters turned out, which didn't. Um, Trump is supportive of Youngkin and wants people to turn out. He has said this is not one of the this is not one of the elections he's asking voters to stay home from. Uh, but uh, Youngkin has tried to do this straddle that Carl points out has not succeeded yet. And if he wins, um, th- there is going to have to be a concerted effort among Republicans to find a way to part ways with the big lie as much as they can and speak to um voters about the in the middle, I would say the middle of the Republican Party and independent leaners, get them back, the suburban voters that have left the party in droves, get them back on issues uh, that matter to them and not, quote, fake election integrity issues. Um, So if he succeeds, he will have found the formula. I also think um, he will have been helped a lot by, you know, McCullough's liabilities and the fact that it's an out year. Uh, but yes, I, I would recommend to any Republican trying to leave the Trump fold that they talk about education and these other salient issues uh, and avoid Trump. And I also would recommend whether Glenn Youngkin wins or loses that Republicans attempting to to win not wear the same red vest every single solitary day on the campaign trail. I think that's just a little weird. Other than that, he seems like a super nice guy. He's worth $400 million. He can probably afford something else, right? It's just weird when people gimmick out and like wear the same thing every time. It's the Rick Santorum. It's the sweater vest. It becomes yeah, a, it I mean, becomes you know, a thing. I didn't like it then. And I loved Laura <laughs> Alexander, but I didn't like his red and black plaid lumberjack shirt, whatever he wore when he ran for president. Andy, since we've talking about wardrobes today more than usual, 
<laughs> Why is Jock Peterson, the outfielder for the Braves, wearing pearls in the outfield and at bat? That's the question I would throw out. Maybe we could talk about that next week. You're going to have to start your own sports podcast, Carl. You can explore that issue. Pearls and, and the Yunkin's red vest. So, Carl, um, we're going to give Tom the last word because we didn't give him the first word. So. No, no. Tom, Andy, we're going to give Tom the last word because he insists on it. <laughs> Every week. Well, I'll, I'll give you the penultimate uh, comment here then, which is uh, you know, just following up on what AB's saying. Turn, turn around. What, what are the Democrats going to take away from this election? They'll blame the candidate. Um, they'll say Terry ran a bad, poor campaign. They'll blame. They'll they'll point to what AB said. It's an off year. Um, I I I wouldn't panic if I if I were the Democrats. This is actually if McAuliffe's never even said why he wants this job. It, it really doesn't mean much there. If McAuliffe loses, that's not why the Democrats can be in trouble next year's midterms. And if Gunkins the governor, Democrats in the legislature, you know. Down in Richmond, we'll work with him and life will go on. He'll be another one term Virginia governor. As they all are. Yeah. Right. And the Demo- because of the state constitution. And the Democrats need to start focusing on the on the midterms. And the in in our, I think my opinion, I think it's shared by people on this podcast. The best thing they can do for themselves then uh is have as having passed a stimulus bill by the by election day. Tom, last word. I believe this is one of those races that that does matter. I mean, this is a, this is going to have serious consequences. I mean, this is a state, remember, that was a Republican for a long time and then flipped to Obama in 2008. Trump lost it by six points. 2016 lost it by 10 points just a year ago, not even a year ago. It is way more of a blue state now than it was when Terry McAuliffe ran the first time or even just a few years ago. And so to have a situation where your presidential candidate wins it by 10 points and the following year, you can't carry that state. Um, that's a significant shift. And that's something that I think is going to have serious consequences in the same way that, you know, when Obama won it, he won it by like seven points. And, you know, a year later, I think McDonald, he won it by like 18 points or something, right? I mean, it was a, it was a thrashing and that was a precursor for uh, what was to come the next year in the midterms where, where Democrats got absolutely wiped out. So it's a bit of a different dynamic because Republicans did so well in 2020. There aren't as many Democrats that are just sort of floating around easily to be picked off. But still, I mean, it would be a serious marker of of the political uh, landscape and and the dissatisfaction that people are feeling toward the Democratic Party. Well, we will keep an eye on that race. It's, uh, it's coming up in November, but that's it for today. So I want to thank Tom Bevan, Carl Cannon, A.B. Stoddard. We're usually here Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays in some form or fashion. So bookmark this podcast. Check out Golfin. As always, I encourage you to go to Real Clear Politics. Read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. Thank you for listening. For Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.